Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep. Two friends, or two fishers, or deux amis, by Guy de Maupassant. Uh, first published in Gilles Blas in February, uh, the 5th of February, 1883, and translated into English at least uh, early in uh, the Strand magazine, probably late 1890s or uh, early 1900. Um, don't have the exact date at hand. However, um, I do think this this story is very much of its period a little earlier, which uh, I think um, is important for the story. Um, that is, this is the story set on a very specific month or a very specific day in a very specific year. Um, and I think that's really important to the story. And also completely unimportant. <laughs> well, Would you like to give I, us a summary actually, there? I, th I think it actually is important, but but its importance uh, is not discussed in the story. One has to noodle it out. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, I think this is a very universal story. A friend of mine who um, is an audiobook narrator talked about this as, as, as his favorite story. And it's, I don't know if it's my favorite story, but the, I do think of it as one of my favorites, so, which is kind of fun. So uh, that is, that's something I'd love to hear explained. So let's just make sure we're reading the same story. This story mm -hmm. um, is set during the, uh, the siege of Paris during the Franco-Prussian War. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, it's somewhere in 1870-71. And since we're told that it begins with uh, one of our two main characters, um, Monsieur Morisot, uh, walking out on New Year's Day, we know it must be, <clears throat> excuse me, must be January 1st, 1871. Right. So that's, that's pretty specific. Um, as he walks along, he encounters an old friend of his whom he hadn't seen presumably in a long time, Monsieur Sauvage, also a Parisian. But if we understand the story, uh, Monsieur Morisot and Monsieur Sauvage never actually spent time together in Paris. They both enjoyed fishing, and there was a place they used to go to outside of Paris, um, indeed a, a little bit of a trip, where they would go and they first encountered each other by the riverbank. And for years, apparently, uh, kept meeting and had what is often called a companionable silence. They didn't have to speak much to know that they agreed with each other. And here during the siege, when all of Paris is starving, um, they see each other and decide to go out there fishing again. Now, that would be impossible since the city is surrounded, but there's a way to sort of get there if you can pass through the French defensive lines. And uh, Monsieur Sauvage says that he knows the colonel, uh, Dumoulin, who is uh, guarding the battalion that is at the point of the lines that they would need to cross. And he would give them the password, meaning, of course, they could get out, but you'd need the password to get back in. So they go out, they get the password, they sit, get to the bank. Um, they sit down and uh, they fish and they think a little bit about the nature of war. And then they hear a noise behind them and 
there are four Prussian soldiers aiming rifles at them. They get captured. They get brought before a Prussian officer who speaks perfect French, it turns out. Uh, this Prussian officer says, you know, I could just kill you, but um, instead I will uh, let you go free if you just give me the password because he wants to be able to infiltrate the French defenses. Uh, the two men don't want to do that. The officer says, well, I assume you have families, which is interesting because families have not been mentioned here at all. And frankly, I'm a little surprised that early on New Year's Day, both these men are walking the streets of Paris alone. But be that as it may, he says, I think you have families. They still refuse to give him the password and they are shot. Uh, the officer has the two men uh, chained up and thrown unceremoniously into the river. Uh, in the course of their fishing, they had, in fact, gotten many uh, fish out of the river and were in a net, which the capturing soldiers had brought to the, uh, to the encampment. Uh, once the two friends, uh, Messieurs uh, Morisot and uh, Sauvage, have been dumped into the river, the officer says um, to one of his uh, underlings, uh, cook up these fish now while they're still alive. I'm sure they will be delicious. And in the last line, he sits back and smokes calmly. That's mm -hmm. the story. Is that the story? That's the story. That's the one. And this story is one of your all-time favorites. Yeah. I'd love to have your sense of how it moves you, how it means for you. Uh, well, you know how you're always uh, talking about how thanatophilic I am. <laughs> yes, that's indeed. A big part of it, right? Um, this is uh, men living their lives, um, risking their lives uh, to live their lives, and um, uh, dying um, in uh, kind of a beautiful way. Um, and then I, I think that that's basically it. I, I mean, it's also an admirable story in the way it's written, but I, I don't think, I don't think that's what makes it my favorite. I think that it, it's that, uh, Montpassant has, a an idea. He executes it beautifully and the idea is beautiful in itself. And I think that that's what makes it one of my favorites. And I think that's also why one of my friends calls it his favorite. What is this idea? Um, that um, that you can't live in fear of death, um, and that um, dignity is maybe perhaps more important than 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 living. Um, there's a kind of dignity that happens. Um, there's a they call it now. We've got names for these things: the game theory, the prisoner's dilemma. Right? These are things you sort of study in university, um, where the the cops arrest two people who have been accused of a crime, and the the cop puts them in separate rooms and then says to one of them, "Right now, your friend is spilling the beans in the other room. If you confess first, you'll get off, and he will be uh, convicted of the crime." And uh, then he goes to the other guy in the other room and says, right now your friend's being investigated and uh, inquired and soon he'll be spilling the beans. And if you confess and uh, say that he did it, uh, you'll get off, testify against him, and you'll go free. Right? And the idea in game theory is that uh, 
the smart move for both people is not to confess. Um, but that's only if both of them don't confess. If, if one of them has any possibility of confession, then they are both screwed because the, the other will know that. And if you don't confess, you're both uh, punished worse. Right? This is classic game theory stuff. Um, and Montpassant's solution is for the two friends not to confess, not to give up the password, um, and for them to, you know, sort of have enjoyed their company, shake hands, and take the bullets. The the classic text on this uh, happens to be done by a colleague of mine at the University of Michigan. It's a book called The Evolution of Cooperation. Mm -hmm. uh, Rob Axelrod is the author, a, a very smart man. Uh, he does his work with The Prisoner's Dilemma um, not on a one-off instance of The Prisoner's <laughs> Dilemma, but what he calls an iterated Prisoner's Dilemma. Uh, that is a situation in which you get to make the choices again and again and again, as opposed to a one-off where the result is fatal. And that's, you know, that's it. You've made your choice. You either live or die. Um <laughs> And there are things that are that are iterated prisoners' dilemmas uh, in real life. Uh, for example, foreign policy. Um, when international policy, you know, how should you react in relation to how should one nation react in relation to another? You're you can always go for distinct immediate advantage. For example, putting up tariff walls. Okay. But you can also ask whether or not. The continuing relations here are such that they're going to wind up maximizing the profit for both parties involved. Um, Axelrod quantifies all of this um, and works it out mathematically, but he gives very appealing names to the different sorts of strategies that could be adopted to deal with the prisoner's dilemma. The ones that always win in the long run are what he calls the nice strategies. Mm. The nice strategies are the ones in which you always are willing to do what your opponent does. So the simplest strategy that always works is do what your opponent does. This, if he's good, you be good. If he's bad, you immediately be bad. But if he then turns right around and he's good again, don't keep punishing him, you then be good. And it turns out, that the nice strategies are the ones that always work mathematically and in mm -hmm. every domain, including mindless biological evolution, hence the title of his book, The Evolution of Cooperation. What we have here in these two men is not simply a prisoner's dilemma. You know, they committed a crime. They were caught by the cops. They're being asked. They are acting as if they are part of an iterated prisoner's dilemma. Mm. They are acting as if they have had long relations with each other and they want to have continuing relations with each other. Mm -hmm. The German officer could have thought, you know, if I'm not going to get the password from these guys, I might as well capture them or I might as well release them and see if we can overhear the password as they try to get back through the lines or what the hell in the fish metaphor. They're small fry anyway. Mm -hmm. It's not clear that the officer will, in fact, have them executed just because he says he would. Um, so they they take the nice strategy. Now, 
the winning strategy isn't the winning strategy at every iteration of the game. It's only the winning strategy overall. What Maupassant has given us here is, in effect, two people who are demonstrating their faith in the future, even if it costs them their lives. And that sense of friendship, that companionable silence that informs their lives and makes them so happy to see each other, even in a time when their entire city is starving and under siege, um, that's really touching. Mm, I think that's exactly. There's so much about sound and speaking and not speaking in this very short story that I think really resonates um, with the with the message. Um, and if, if we look at it that way, Jesse, um, it seems to me that that Maupassant was right in calling the story "Deux Amis," two friends. Yeah. And the English translation of two fishers. Um, really shifts where our attention goes in the story. Yeah, I agree. Uh, the the soldiers. That's why I think that that like there, there's something very specific about this story. It's you know it's set in a very specific place, like very specific geography, very specific time, very specific time of day on a very specific year on a very specific you know month. This is actually, you know, this is less than a month away from the end of the Siege of Paris. These guys could have lived had they waited a month, right? They could have gone back to fishing as they regularly did. But they go out for drinks. <laughs> they have, uh, what, what's the drink they have? It's absinthe. The, uh, the absinthe, the green fairy, right? Makes them yeah. a little tipsy. Makes them um, a little more... They have partaken too freely, as the English translation puts it, and they they go uh, and agree to go um, and risk the danger of being killed. They act like like criminals, right? Sneaking into their their uh, favorite fishing spot, and once the fishing is good and they're enjoying, as we we get in the preview of uh, what their previous trips have been like um how they can sit for hours and just say eh, not bad eh beats <laughs> being down by the boulevard right and they can just sit enjoying the day catching fish and to me there's something really nicely parallel even though you know the germans are they're, they're the quote-unquote bad guys of this story uh, you know Montpassant fought in the war against the the prussians um, they're, he's kind of the same way as they are. He's just doing his job, having a smoke, right? He's not, he calls them gentlemen as he shoots them, you know? There's nothing really, uh, menacing or horrible about him. He's just, he's going to kill people. Yep. Just like these two guys, you know, they're fishing, killing fish. That's fine. There's, there's so, sort of a gentleness of the horror in here. And, um... Uh, when they th there's a number of lines that are like this you know that pull me into the story and and make me say oh my god this is beautiful it's just beautiful sort of a sort of a sense that you got to live your life even if death is around every corner and you don't know if this is going to cause that so i want to read a, a few bits here in autumn towards evening when the setting sun reddened the sky and cast shadows 
of the fleeting clouds over the water, when the river was decked in purple, when the whole horizon was lighted up and the figures of the two friends were illuminated as with fire, when the russet brown of the trees was lightly tinged with gold, and the trees themselves shivered with a wintry shake, Monsieur Sauvage would smile at Monsieur Morisot and say, What a sight, eh? And Monsieur Morisot, without even raising his eyes from the float, would answer, Better than the boulevard, eh? Yeah, that is lovely. It is lovely. The, he doesn't even have to lift his eyes to see it. Well, of course, one of the reasons he doesn't have to lift his eyes is that the sky is reflected in the surface of the river. Right. He can see it without lifting his eyes. But also, uh, Maupassant is such a, a an incisive writer. Another reason he doesn't have to lift his eyes at the moment that his friend speaks is that he's already absorbed the environment in the silence before the friend speaks. The, the story is very much concerned with the passage of time. Um, from the very first paragraph, um, Paris was blockaded, famished at the point of death. Even the sparrows on the housetops were few and far between, and the very sewers were in danger of becoming depopulated. People ate anything they could. Monsieur Morisot, watchmaker by trade, was walking early one bright January morning down the boulevards. So he's he's walking down these boulevards that he's right ready to say, you know, the nature is better than that. Look at his job. He is, in fact, a watchmaker. Mm-hmm. He's somebody who tries to make it possible to tell time, which is in one sense an imposition of human um, measurement on nature. But in that passage you just read, Jesse, we have nature giving us the measurement of time. Um, mm-hmm. That that image of autumn is paralleled in the discussion, uh, the description of their habitual conversations with one of the spring. And I noticed that spring and autumn, as opposed to winter and summer, are liminal, transitional seasons. You know, spring comes in like a lion, goes out like a lamb. Autumn is uh, two-faced. It's the end of summer or the beginning of winter. We think of winter as in our grip. We think of the height of summer. These are the two transitional seasons. And this story is about transition through time and through the human body, right? There is, everyone is empty. They are starving. The city is empty, so much so that the sewers are starving. It's about in, ingestion and excretion. And mm-hmm. Paris is blocked. They are blocked. They go to a riverside, and Paris, after all, sits on a river. Um, they go to a, the riverside. Habitually, rivers are reminders of time. The passage of the water down the river is a reminder of the passage of time. These two fellows come back to that river that they've come to again and again. One of them, Morisot, is the watchmaker. But the other, Sauvage, which means wild or untamed or uncivilized, Monsieur Sauvage is a linen draper. That is, he sells cloth made of flax. One of them is much more artificial. One of them is much more natural. And we see the conflict between the natural and the artificial Throughout this story, they try to be natural together. And what intervenes is human politics. 
And they have a little discussion, as you know, you know, would would the French have declared war? And oh, well, no, but I guess, well, uh, monarchies declare international war, republics have inter- internal wars. Human beings together will always be creating war. So there's going to be the passage of time. Now, in this passage of time, there's fish. Mm-hmm. The fish live, you know, in the water. And these two guys are fishers, and I cannot help but remember the passage in the Bible where Jesus says to to Peter and Andrew to come with me and I will make you fishers of men. Mm-hmm. That, in fact, the shiny silver body of the, the, the dudgeon, which is the name of the fish that uh, they catch in the river, the shiny silver uh, wiggling thing that comes up out of the water has been a symbol for the unconscious or the soul forever, <laughs> which is why one of the symbols for, for Christianity is that symbol of the fish. Um, and it's also in Greek, it's ichthus, Jesus Christos, Theos, Oios, Soter, Jesus, the anointed one, um, God, uh, son of the Lord. Um, so it spells ichthus, but that symbol of the fish. So here we have two disciples of peacefulness coming out to be fishers, and they catch a net full, just as Jesus had, uh, had shown people how to do, his disciples how to do. They catch a net full. So they're willing to consume the fish. And they don't get to consume the fish. In fact, the fish are brought over to the the officer. And the officer then wants to consume the fish. And he has their bodies thrown back in and says, now the fish will have their turn. Mm -hmm. It's a cycle of death and life, life and death, death and life, all through the passage of time. And everyone takes it philosophically. The real horror is that sometimes the death is hurried along, and yet these two men do not take their death with fear. As you say, it's beautiful because they are together, right? They, they are, the, the actual translation is inaccurate, but, but they are side by side, mm-hmm. trembling a bit nervously, but, but they are together. Um, and that makes it possible to face death and go back into the river. Um, this, this I think, is more about friendship than it is about, about fishing. Um, yep. But there is a place, there is a place um, where I do want to, to ask the question about translation or a question about it. It says in our English translation from the Strand magazine, a soldier placed at the feet of the officer the net full of fish which he had brought away with him. That is, he had taken uh, the two fishermen's net of fish with him to go back to bring them, the, the men, and the, the fish to the officer. Not bad, I see, the officer says, of the bag, bag of fish, but we have other fish to fry. Mm-hmm. Now, in the original French, that line, but we have other fish to fry, is... Uh, Mais il s'agit d'autre chose. But this is concerned with something else. Mm-hmm. That expression, I have other fish to fry, there are other fish to fry, it's nowhere in the original. Mm-hmm. So what the translators have done here in this passage, and they've done it elsewhere in the story, they've played up, or he or she has played up 
the fishiness of the story. Yeah. And I think it therefore, by comparison, diminishes somewhat the friendship aspect of the story. The, the, because now we're, we're really thinking of these two guys as sort of disciples of Jesus. And we've got this whole thing about catching the fish in the net and you go and join the fishes. And, uh, and I can't help but wonder, is this a good or bad translation practice? Is it good that the translators make it more likely that we will we'll notice the significance of the fish? And we will, by having the title be The Fishers, Think of ourselves as as looking at Jesus's disciples who are learning to kill, but learning to eat and know that death is just a moment in eternity for those who are good. Um, or is it, in fact, sort of pushing us toward that sort of a, an interpretation and playing down the significance of friendship, which seems to be central to how these men make their decision? They don't mention their families at all. Um, the translator, I'm thinking, has made one interpretation, a slight difference of interpretation, more likely than another. Is that good or bad translation? Mm-hmm. That's a real question. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I know, I know that it's played up, but I also think that there. I mean, I'm not sure about the French version, but there's there's a couple of things that that make the playing up a little better. The, the men are the fish themselves. They've been caught, right? Yes. They, they, then they're thrown back in to where they they uh, wanted to spend all their time. There's a beauty there that's kind of crazy. But there's a, a, a couple of translations here that are lines that I think uh, play into the fishing aspect. Listen to this. Reflect. In five minutes, you will be at the bottom of that water, says the Prussian officer. And then they... He says, I will give you one minute, and they don't say anything. They're silent, and they're silent companionably, right? And then it says, by accident, Morisot's glance fell upon the net full of fish on the ground. A few steps off, a ray of sunshine lit up their glittering body, the reflection, right? Yeah. And sudden weakness came over him. Goodbye, Monsieur Sauvage, he whispered. Goodbye, Monsieur Morisot, replied Monsieur Sauvage. They pressed each other's hands, trembling from head to foot. Fire, said the officer. That reflection um, and thinking about the fish uh, being caught and, you know, they're, they're over. They're done, right? Even if they had given the password, there's no clear evidence that he would have let them go. He might have shot them anyways. Um, in fact, they they gain nothing by not telling other than keeping their dignity and keeping their friendship. And they don't they're so philosophical when the guns start firing on the cliff prior to their capture. It's almost like the war isn't even they're not even on a side in this war. They're just trying to do their fishing. Right. They don't particularly say, you know, the French are right and the Prussians are wrong. The Prussians are right and the French are wrong. It's just, this is where we live and this is what we do and this is how it'll be. And there's something beautiful in there. And, and that reflection, the ray of sunshine, uh, it's, it makes us think more about the fish. So I agree. The title should be <laughs> Two Friends. I prefer that one. 
But um, two fishers isn't all that wrong either, because if you're fishing together, you're probably friends, even if you don't particularly like each other in other circumstances. Right. Uh, the, the, the friendship is crucial. That that line that you, you know, at the end, just before the officer f- shouts fire um, in the French, it's they shook each other by the hand, um, trembling from foot to head to head by, um, uh, how shall I say, uh, shaken from foot to head by invincible tremors. Mm-hmm. Nothing could conquer this. So how do you stand with that? You stand by holding someone else's hand. The The, the mutual support that these fellows um, allow each other, lend each other, is is a beautiful lesson for us all. And I can see why you call the story beautiful, but that's not the end of the story. No, it's not. The end of the story is fry these little animals for me at once while they are still alive and kicking. They will be delicious. Then he, the officer, began smoking again. Mm -hmm. Um. There is a conflict, I shouldn't say a conflict, a contrast between the artificial and the natural here, right? Between the watchmaker and the linen draper, between inside the city and out in the country, and so on. Um, Is smoking natural or unnatural? We've seen smoke again and again in this story as guns, artillery pieces blast over their heads. Um, Is this officer, this German officer, displaced into France? able to speak in both languages. Is he in some sense admirable or is he just showing us the uh, insensitivity of people to anything they don't consider to be real people? Um, He didn't, after all, think, well, they are small fry. I don't need anything from them. What's the moral of this story in your, your view, Jesse? Beautiful, yes. The moral? I would say the moral of this story is that friendship is more important than anything else. So that last image, um, fry these little animals, they will be delicious. Then he began smoking again. He's alone. He, He's alone. That man, he's not really, he's not a man. He's just a sort of a force. He's uh, the outside inter- impinging on, on, you know, a friend's afternoon fishing. And they don't treat him like a, a monster. So for the German officer, he ends in isolation, burning something up, mm. a, a, a metonym for... The, the destructive artillery pieces. But for you and me, two friends reading the story together, there's always more to say. 